morning. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Everybody have a good 4th of July weekend? Um, if you were one of the people shooting fireworks off at 1.30 in the morning, uh, there's a special place very far away from the center of heaven for you. Maybe not hell, maybe it won't put you in hell, but you'll definitely be last in line at the buffet. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean, and uh, we are starting today a, a little short series, uh, a little summer series called Be Rich. Be Rich. Did you, did you know, right, the Bible says, 1 Timothy 6, we're going to look at it in a second, 1 Timothy 6 says these words, Be Rich. Did you know that? Let, let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. It, it says this, okay, 1 Timothy 6. Starting in verse 17, it says, instruct those who are rich, okay? Just to be clear, you may not feel rich. You, you may not feel wealthy. You may not feel like this applies to you. You may say, Sean, I live paycheck to paycheck. You don't understand our finances. You don't understand. Uh, we, we just have to humbly acknowledge that the amount of wealth and abundance we have is something that would be unfathomable to Paul when he writes to Timothy, Right? So we would qualify. He says, those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. And just a little free tangent here. If you've gone through Rooted, you've heard me talk through this passage. This last phrase right here should just kind of blow your mind about who God is and what he wants to do in your life. Everything, look, look, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, right? You'll have to take rooted to hear the rest of the talk. Here we go. Uh, continues on, verse 9 to 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Uh, my father-in-law, he's been a pastor for uh, decades and decades, and he has some standard advice he gives to newlywed couples. If they do premarital counseling or if they just got married, uh, he says that uh, in a marriage, there are two types of people. There are two very different types of people in this world, and they tend to marry each other, okay? The two types of people is there are how people, they, they're pragmatic they like a plan, they like a budget, they like to know the steps, and then what he calls their wow people. And their whole world is just pursuing the next wow. What if we did this? <gasps> Whoa, what, what about this vacation? What if, we, what if we did this remodel? What if we just knocked this whole side of the house out, right? And the how people end up marrying the wow people. And the wild people come home, and they, they have dinner, and they go, oh, I had this great idea. And the how person goes, oh, oh but how are we going to afford it? Where are we going to get the money? How are you going to finance it? Who's, who's going to do the work? What, what are we going to do in the meantime when half of our house is totally destroyed? And this is the advice he says. He says, if you were the how person in a marriage, he says, don't how things to death. Right? He says this. He says, Wow before you how. This is advice to, to, to early married couples. Maybe uh, if you're in a relationship or you're going to be in one, you could take this too. He said, if you're the how person, the first word out of your mouth, even if you have to grit your teeth, even if it's every single amount of self-discipline you have in your, in your, in your body, when, when your partner comes to you and they say, they say, oh, I got an idea. He said, here's the first thing you need to say. Just this, just go. Wow. 
don't have to say yes or no. Just wow. He says, uh, wow, before you how. And, and today we're going to talk about, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how. How to be rich in, in, in good deeds and good works. How to be generous and ready to share. We're going to talk about how in the next couple of weeks. But um, I just want to start today with just a little bit of wow. I mean, think, isn't this the kind of world we would all want to live in? I mean, what kind of community would it look like? What kind of church, what kind of life, what kind of family would it look like if your family, if your life, if your workplace was marked by this rich in good deeds, generous and ready to share? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wow, can you, can you imagine? Wow. It wows me. Right? There are times you see glimpses of it. You see glimpses of people acting this way, and we all just go, wow. Like there is good things left in humanity. Uh, when you see people you know, raising money for someone and people giving to, to someone or something, and they don't even know the people. And, and you know, some of you know stories about that you know, they're trying to raise money to fix a car or to upgrade a car or to, to buy a house or to go on a vacation or to pay off their own bills. And they give generously. And in those moments, we just go, wow, like that is, that's awesome. That's beautiful. That just a couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity with a couple other people to, to have a wow moment. And it was because of you. Back beginning in Mother's Day in May, we began collecting diapers and wipes. You know, if you've been here for a while, we, we do this every single year. And, and we got to go deliver the diapers. And, and it's just funny. You should ask the people who go. It's just funny to listen to uh, all the people who work there just chatter about it. There's, there's a mix of, of celebration and there's a mix of confusion because they're kind of confused why uh, people would give so much. And then there's a little bit of panic. Because they're like, I don't know what we're going to do with all these. In fact, again, when we showed up this week, they're like, I don't know where to put this. There's not room in storage. Well, why don't we take him back into one of the mommy rooms? And we started taking the mommy rooms, and someone came and said, oh, we can't put him in the mommy rooms. Well, we've got to put him somewhere else, right? And so let me show you a picture, right? Um, this, is, this is floor to ceiling, right? And actually, the way the picture is cropped, you can't see, but the diapers go this direction even more. Um, I would say... Probably about a third of the storage room is floor-to-ceiling diapers and wipes that have a little sticker on them and they say, thank you for what you do, MCC. Floor-to-ceiling diapers. I mean, they're just, they're just, this is, there's not a table here, just to be clear. There's not a table here. They're just stacked up in the corner off the ground. And in those moments when you stand in that room and you see just diapers and diapers and diapers from people who gave not often out of abundance, but out of generosity, out of graciousness, out of kindness, stand there and go, wow, wow. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we worked in workplaces, lived in families, lived in communities that were marked by this, like that would be good. That'd be good. And you know, if, if I was giving this sermon about five years ago, he, here's what I'd say to you, right? If I was giving this sermon about five years ago, I'd say, I'd say if we're going to be this place, right? If we're going to be 1 Timothy 6, if we're going to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share, if we're going to be this kind of place, you, you know, 
right? You know what Jesus says, Matthew 22. Let me, let me flip over to it for you. Matthew 22 tells the story of a lawyer coming to Jesus. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. They were trying to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I would say, look, Jesus is going to tell us how we be these kind of people. He says this, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus just basically says, the greatest commandment is you got to love God with everything that you are. However you define the elements and the parts of who you are, you love God with everything that you are. And uh, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if I was to give this sermon about five years ago, I'd bring you to this and I'd say, look, look, if we're going to be people that claim to love God, you know, First John, it says, uh, how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen? In fact, First John, John right, he says, knowing this, he says, uh, if you claim to love God, and hate your brother, right? Which doesn't have to be outright hate. Disregard your brother. Don't care for your brother. <laughs> this is what John says. He says, you're a liar. Right? And I would say, look, 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 look. And in the Greek, this phrase right here, this is beautiful, this is incredible. This is like, changes the way I read the passage, right? A lot of times we think of like, this is the greatest commandment. And then Jesus is just like, for extra credit, you know what the second greatest commandment is? And he gives us this. But the Greek word here, right here, doesn't mean similar. Sometimes like means similar. It means of the same nature. This is what John's picking up when he says you can't claim to love God and then hate your brother. That the love that we show God is shown. It's a fruit of a thing going on in us that expresses itself in loving God and loving our neighbor simultaneously. And then in fact, Jesus is saying, and John picks up, that if we fail to love our neighbor, it actually exposes a deficit, not simply in our love for our neighbor, but in our love for God. It is of the same nature. The danger, though, that I've realized over these years is that you might then go home and think that what your job as a Christian is is to discipline yourself to love God more. What you might begin to think is that this following Jesus thing, that in some very subtle but oh so perversive way, we will begin to twist what it means to be a follower of Jesus to a workspace salvation. It'll be a workspace salvation, and it's not going to be a workspace salvation on don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do, right? Some of you heard that firsthand in the 60s and 70s. It'll be a workspace salvation about did you wake up early enough to read your Bible? Did you pray long enough? Did you go to church long, often enough? Did you give enough? And it's really weird, twisted, subtle way, we begin to believe that the reason we get in, the reason we're a part of the family, the reason we're accepted and called sons and daughters of God is because the amount of effort I put behind loving God and loving neighbors. And we'll slowly begin to think 
that the reason that God loves us is because of what we do. It's really subtle. Here's, 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 a way, here's a way that you could know, okay? In the moments in your life, we all have these moments. We all have these moments where we realize that, that God's calling us to something that we're not doing, right? There's some part of our life where there's some disconnect, and, and maybe it's a part of our mind that God's called us to love him with this part of our mind, and, and we're like, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really want to love you with this part of my mind, or this part of my body, or this part of my soul, in those moments when you realize, when you, you know, the, the Bible would call it sin, when you see your own brokenness, your own rebellion in your soul, does it drive you away from God? Or does it drive you closer to God? Because you see, when we begin to believe that loving God is a checklist item we can do to earn his acceptance and his pleasure in us and earn the accreditation that he says, this is my son or this is my daughter, in those moments when we see a gap between our ability to love our neighbor, you, 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 know, you know the neighbors, right? You have neighbors, and some of them are very hard to love. And, you know, you are hard to love for some of your neighbors, and when you realize that God's calling you to be generous in good works, to be rich in good works, and, and, and generous with those who are in need, and, and you recognize this gap, does it drive you closer to God or further away from God? Because if you've become to believe that your act of loving God is what accepts you into his community in those moments when you see the gap, it'll drive you away from him. It'll separate you because, because you recognize, I, I, you know, I'm not, maybe, maybe you won't think like you're kicked out, right? Like you get booted off the team, you get ejected from the family, but you'll begin to recognize, you'll begin to feel a distance and a separation and you'll begin to say, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't get to come in to the house of God. I don't get to come in before his throne, and it'll create a distance from you because you have wrongly believed that you were ever welcomed in because anything you did. In the moments when we recognize the gap between our uh, attempts at pursuing and honoring God with everything that we are and, and the reality of those things, when we understand the grace and mercy of God, it causes us to actually come closer to him because in those moments, what, 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 what we say in those moments is, oh, the grace and mercy of God that he still loves me. Oh, the good, <laughs> you know how good God is? He loves me right now. Oh my goodness, God, you are so good and you are so kind and you are so gracious that even in this moment, you love me completely and fully, it's what could lead the Apostle Paul to write the words that he was the chief of all sinners. But he recognized his inability. Here's the funny thing about this, um, this little passage here, okay? Um, this greatest commandment and, you know, the second greatest commandment being like and all that kind of stuff is, um, remember the context. The lawyer comes to him to trick Jesus and he asks the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Well, what, is, what does Paul say about the law? 
Paul says that the law is a tutor. That's one of the words, one of the ways we translate it. It's a teacher. It's, it's pointing us to something, right? And one of those things that the law is intended to point us to is our insufficiency. The law is good, Paul says, but, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous. No, not one. None of us. None of us. And yet somehow we can so subtly begin to twist and think, oh yeah, none of us can accomplish the law, but this one we can. And if you don't, you're not a very good Christian. And if you don't accomplish these things in all of your life, you're kind of on the fringe. You know, you really should grow up in your faith. But Jesus says that he's come to fulfill the law. The commandments of the law are good and right, but the commandments of the law are not what get us into the family of God. The grace and mercy and kindness of God. So there's a, there's a parable. There's a parable that, uh, it's an odd parable. It's always been a confusing parable to me for, for a lot of reasons. And I'm still not fully resolved that I'm comfortable with um, how this parable all works. But there's this parable, it's in Matthew. Um, uh, let me, let me uh, oh, actually, I didn't put the verse up. So let me just tell you the story. It's in Matthew, and uh, it, it says that God, that Jesus comes, that when he comes back with his angels, right, second coming, he separates the uh, sheep from the goats. Do you know this? And he separates the sheep from the goats, and he turns the sheeps, and he says, well done, enter into my rest. And then he, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And he, he kind of goes through this list, right? And, and one of the peculiar things about this, this passage is that even in the end, when Jesus has come back, in that moment, it says that the sheep say to him, when did we see you? Right? That's kind of a weird response. These are the sheep. These are, this is the in crowd. And, and then there's the goats. Right? And he says the same thing to the goats, except the opposite. He says, depart from me. Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. He goes through the same exact list. And they ask the same question. When did we see you? There's a lot of questions I have with this story about what's going on in this group and what's going on in this group. And, and here's, here's, what, here's what I think. I think the question of the goats exposes they actually had a desire to do the right thing. I think that if the goats could have talked longer, they said, when, when did we see you? We would have done it if you just told us. That if we just knew, if you just said it, if, if you just said this is the moment, we would have done it because for the goats, they were all about answering the rules, about doing the right thing, about earning their place before God. That if you had just told us to care for those people, we would have done it. If you just told us to feed the hungry, we would have fed them. The sheep over here, they get the same information. They're as confused as the goats are. And so what is it about them that caused them to serve and to love and to be gracious and to care for their neighbors in a way that the goats didn't? And here's what, here's what I think. I, I think for them, uh, their great life pursuit, let me give you a little proposal, was not to learn to love God. It was to learn the love of God. Again, it's, it's, it's such a subtle difference. Okay? This group over here was trying to do all the right things so they could check off the box and say, hey, we got 97% on loving God this week. 
This group over here spent their life being consumed and saturated and, and soaked in and marinated in the extent of God's love. And here's what they didn't even realize happened in them. The, 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 the Holy Spirit sanctified their hearts in a way where they couldn't interact with the world any differently. They, they, they didn't set out on a checklist to say, okay, hey, next time you see someone, remember, make sure to have cash in your pocket because if, if someone's short on cash, make sure you got it. Make sure that you put it on recurring giving for the nonprofit you're gonna support. Make sure that when you go, you go every Tuesday to, to serve at this community thing and make sure you take a picture on Instagram, right? It wasn't a checklist of items, of hours to serve or money to give. They were a people who were so saturated by the goodness and mercy of God that it changed them without them even noticing. So that when Jesus shows up and says, well done, you did all the, you were rich, good works. You cared for my children and my image bearers well. You were generous and gracious and quick to forgive. I think if this group over here, if this sheep group had a chance to talk more, they would have gone, what else, like what else could we have done? God, you, you wrecked me. You destroyed me with your grace and mercy. I have struggled to understand why you would love me still today. I've struggled to understand why you would be gracious and kind, the extent of your joy and hope for me. How, how, could, I, how could I treat neighbors any differently? Because you shook me to the very core, not because I disciplined myself to be a more loving person, but because I was wrecked by the love you've shown me. And so with the time we have left, I, I want to I actually just, I want to try and remind you of the love God has for you. There's this passage, there's a parable, it's one verse, right? Um, maybe I have that one, let me see if I have that one, right here. This, it, it, the whole parable is one verse, it's a great parable, right? Again, it's a, it's a um, one verse parable, it says this, the kingdom of heaven Right? Or the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and he bought that field. Matthew 13, verse 45. Now, if you've been around church a lot, you've probably heard this parable or, or maybe you've heard someone allude to it, right? And they'll kind of tell it to you in their own words about, you know, the kingdom of God is so great. It's like, it's, it's worth selling everything that you have, right? And that might be what someone says to you, right? Is that when you understand the grace and mercy of God, you understand his kindness, right? Jesus tells this parable, it's worth selling everything. If you leave everything behind, it will be better because you get the kingdom of God. You get Jesus, and then I heard a pastor talking about this a couple months ago, <laughs> and uh, I'd never heard anybody else talk about it this way. And he said, um, that's not what the parable's about. If you look at the passage in Matthew 13, if you look at the whole context of Matthew 13, the whole section of Matthew 13 is about the generous abundance of God's actions. It's not about you. When, when, we, when we take this passage, when we take this parable to be that I'm the man who goes to buy the field, it's as if to say that I could put God in my debt, that I could purchase his grace. 
that I could earn it. Maybe if I loved him enough, if I loved my neighbors enough, if I gave away enough stuff, if I did enough good works, God would owe me the field of the kingdom. He says, if you look at all the parables in this passage, and they're all actually about God being the one that goes. You see, this parable is not about you. The parable is about the richness and extravagance of God's grace and mercy. Look, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. God found it. He hid it again. And then in God's joy, went and sold all he had. And he bought that field. That field is you. Hebrews says this. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame. He endured the scorn. For the joy set before him. You know what the joy was? It wasn't the nails. (laughs) It wasn't the crucifixion. It wasn't the crown of thorns smashed onto his head. It wasn't the miserable, painful death. The joy set before him was you. The moment he hangs on the cross and he slowly drowns in his own fluids, the joy he sees is is you. He found a treasure worthy, giving everything he had. There's a passage, I love this, it says this, he who gave his own son for you, what more would he not give for you? There's this passage in Ephesians 1, look at this, look at this. Ephesians 1, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know know what, um, uh, in the Greek, what this word right here means, every? It means this, it means um, every. It could also mean all, or totally, or completely. I think every is a good translation. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as look at look at this, look at this, these three words right here. He chose us. The extravagance of the grace and mercy of God. <laughs> as the old preacher says, the old preacher says, um, if you were the only one. Christ would have endured the cross for you. You weren't leftovers. You aren't what he has to tolerate. You weren't the rejects that nobody else wanted on their team. And God's like, oh, well, fine. Just keep them down low on the bench. No. He chose you. When you could do nothing Scripture says when we were enemies in our minds with with God, Christ died for us before we could do anything that would remotely look anything righteous or good or holy. Christ saw you and he came after you and he gave everything for you. Man, the gospel should wreck us. It is crazy. It is absurd. And I, I, hope, I hope that this morning that you would know he chose you.
that in all the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the betrayal hanging on the cross, Jesus could have at any moment just said, I'm done. (laughs) Nope. This is dumb. He didn't. He endured the cross because he loves you. Not a future you, not a better you, not you on your good days, not you on your disciplined days. He loves you so recklessly and so immensely. I hope that you know this morning, I hope that you'd be reminded all throughout the week, all summer this summer, the extravagance of his love, that you would soak yourself in reminders that he is a good father who's run to you, who sacrificed the fatted calf, one parable tells us, who gave all of himself for you, who rejoices over you, who says all of heaven rejoices over, just as you are, as his son or his daughter. I hope that you would remember today whatever has been going on in your life, that, they, that there is more grace than you can fathom. There is more joy than all the songs of creation could contain. That there is more mercy than could be spoken of. There is more peace than could be ever experienced on this side of heaven. And in fact, that there is more love for you from our God than all the galaxies of creation could contain, that all of heaven could contain, which is why he left heaven to come after you. I hope you know this morning that you are immensely, intensely, overwhelmingly, absurdly loved by our Father.